0: CHAPTER Twelve OF AUTOBIOGRAPHY OF AN ACTRESS BY ANNA CORA MOLWIT. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY KELLY TAYLOR THE DAY OF MY DEBUT WAS FIXED. IT WAS IN THE MONTH OF JUNE, 1845. I HAD THREE WEEKS ONLY FOR PREPARATION, INCESSANT STUDY, TRAINING, discipline of a kind which the actor-student alone can appreciate were indispensable to perfect success i took fencing lessons to gain firmness of position and freedom of limb i used dumbbells to overcome the constitutional weakness of my arms and chest i exercised my voice during four hours every day to increase its power i wore a voluminous train for as many hours a daily to learn the graceful management of queenly or classical robes. I neglected no means that could fit me to realize my beau-ideal of Campbell's lines, but by the mighty actor brought, illusion's perfect triumphs come, verse ceases to be airy thought, and sculpture to be dumb. The day before my debut, it was necessary that I should rehearse with the company, I found this a severer ordeal than performing before the public. Once more I stood upon the dimly lighted, gloomy stage, not now in the position of an author to observe, to criticize, to suggest, but to be observed, to be criticized, very possibly, nay, very probably, to be ridiculed, if I betray the slightest ignorance of what I attempted there is always a half-malicious curiosity amongst actors to witness the shortcomings of a novice they invariably experience strong inclinations to prophecy failure no wonder for they know best the nice subtleties of their own art the unexpected barriers that start up between the neophyte and his goal only those actors who are engaged in the scene rehearsed are permitted to occupy the stage The play was The Lady of Lyon. Mrs. Vernon, as Madame de Chapelle, and I, as Pauline, took our seats to open the first scene. The actors crowded around the wings, eager to pass judgment on the trembling debutante. The stage manager, seated at his table, scanned her with cold and scrutinizing eyes. The pale prompter laid his book upon his knee that he might stare at her more deliberately. Even the sleepy little call-boy, regardless of the summons in his hand, put on the sapient look and attitude of a critic. "'If I could but shut out all these eyes,' I said to myself, "'but turn wherever I would, they met me, hemmed me in on all sides, girdled me with freezing influences.' After we had taken our seats, there was a moment's awful silence. It was broken by Mr. Berry's dignified. He was alarmingly dignified. Commence, if you please. Mrs. Vernon spoke the first few lines of the play. By a resolute effort, forcing myself into composure, I replied. I cannot tell you why, but the sound of my own voice, distinct and untrimulous, reassured me. The Rubicon was passed. I thought no more of the surrounding eyes so full of speculation— of the covert ill wishes, of the secret condemnations, I gave myself up to the part and acted with all the abandon and intensity of which I was capable. During the rehearsal of the third act, I was startled by a sudden burst of applause. It came from a crowd of actors at the side scenes, an involuntary and most unusual tribute. To say it produced no effect upon me would be affectation." For a moment, my equanimity was pleasurably destroyed. I had tasted the first drop in the honeyed cup of success. "'Go on, if you would please, go on,' said Mr. Berry, noticing the pause, and I went on. The play continued and ended without further interruption. When it was over, the company gathered around me with tokens of undisguised interest— from many lips i received the delightful assurance that if i was not frightened at night i should achieve a great triumph i shall not be frightened i answered confidently not be frightened reiterated mr skewrit he was at that time the low comedian of the park theatre don't lay such a flattering unction to your soul when night comes you will be frightened half out of your senses You don't know what stage fright is. I have a talisman to keep off stage fright, the motive that brings me upon the stage. We shall see, was his incredulous answer. None but actors can thoroughly comprehend the meaning of the appalling words stage fright, the nightmare of the profession, a sensation of icy terror to which no language can give adequate utterance. I have seen veteran actors who have studied some new character until every syllable of the author seemed indelibly written on their brains, who had rehearsed their parts with the most telling enthusiasm, who gloried in the prospect of making a hit. At last, when night came and they stood before footlights to embody the ideal creation for the first time, I have seen them seized with a sudden tremor, their utterance choked, their eyes rolling about or fixed on vacancy their limbs shaking and every faculty paralyzed i was not initiated into the horrors of sage fright on the first night of my performance but the dramatic incubus visited me in its worst form on an equally important occasion nor was the attack the sole one in my professional life but what magic the demon can be exercised remains an undiscovered mystery. The morning of my debut was passed with my sisters. Scarcely an allusion was made to the trying event which must take place that evening. The rich apparel spread out upon my bed received its finishing touches at their hands and was consecrated by a few silent tears. One of my sisters only, Julia, the youngest, had the courage to be present when that attire was worn. My costume was chosen by Mrs. Vernon, almost the first actress with whom I became acquainted, a lady highly respected and beloved in the profession. Her name and that of her relatives have done honor to the stage for a long series of years. As we drove to the theater at night, the carriage passed my father's house. There was a group at the window watching us, Chiffs waved as long as we were in sight. I cannot help wondering what sort of place the world in general imagines the star dressing room to be. In the days of my nascence, I presume that it was a sort of boudoir, prettily and comfortably furnished, to which the princesses of the stage retired to take their luxurious ease, But oh the difference the star dressing-room is usually a small closet-like apartment with a few strips of well-worn baize or carpet on the floor a rude shelf runs along one side of the wall and serves as a dressing-table a dingy-looking glass a couple of superannuated chairs a rickety washstand these are generally speaking the richest luxuries of the locality Such was the star dressing-room to which I was introduced at the Park Theatre. Mr. Mowat's request obtained for me a Lilliputian sofa, so particularly hard that it was at once recognizable as a theatrical property, a thing of sham, designated for the deception of an audience. I believe even the demand for this delusive accessory to comfort was considered very unreasonable.' I was just dressed when there came a slight tap upon the door, accompanied by the words, "'Pauline, you are called.' I opened the door. The call boy stood without, the inseparable long strip of paper between his fingers. I inquired who he wanted. "'You, ma'am, you are called.' What a singular piece of familiarity, I thought to myself. "'It is I whom he is addressing as Pauline.' I did not suspect that it was customary to call the performers by the names of the characters assumed. Called for what, I inquired, in a manner that was intended to impress the daring offender with a sense of respect due to me. For what, he retorted, prolonging the what with an indescribably humorous emphasis and thrusting his tongue against his cheek. Why, for the stage, to be sure, that's the what oh was all i could say and the little urchin ran downstairs smothering his laughter its echo however reached me from the green room where after making his call he probably related my insophisticated inquiry at that moment mr malwick came to conduct me to the stage mrs vernon who played my mother was already seated at a small table in madame de chapelle's drawing-room i took my place on a sofa opposite her holding in my hand a magnificent bouquet claude's supposed offering to pauline after a few whispered words of encouragement mr Mollet left me to witness the performance from the front of the house somebody spread my pauline scarf on the chair up beside me somebody else arranged the folds of my train symmetrically "'Somebody's fingers gathered in their place a few stray curls. "'The stage manager gave an order of, "'Clear the stage, ladies and gentlemen,' "'and I heard the sound of the little bell for the raising of the curtain. "'Until that moment I do not think a pulse in my frame had quickened its beating. "'But then I was seized with a stifling sensation, "'as though I were choking. "'I could only gasp out, "'Not yet!' i cannot of course there was general confusion managers actors prompter all rushed to the stage some one offered water some scent bottles some fanned me everybody seemed prepared to witness a fainting fit or an attack of hysterics or something equally ridiculous I was arguing with myself against the absurdity of this ungovernable emotion, this humiliating exhibition, and making a desperate endeavor to regain my self-possession, when Mr. Skirrit thrust his comic face over somebody's shoulder. He looked at me with an expression of quizzical exultation and exclaimed, "'Didn't I tell you so? Where's all the courage, eh?' the words recalled my boast of the morning or rather they recalled the recollections upon which that boast was founded my composure returned as rapidly as it had departed i laughed at my own weakness are you getting better kindly inquired the stage-manager let the curtain rise was the satisfactory answer mr berry clapped his hands a signal for the stage to be vacated the crowd at once disappeared madame de chapelle and pauline sat alone as before the tinkling bell of the warning rang and the curtain slowly ascended disclosing first the footlights then the ocean of heads beyond them in the pit then the brilliant array of the ladies in the boxes tier after tier and finally the throng galleries I found those footlights an invaluable aid to the necessary illusion. They formed a dazzling barrier that separated the spectator from the ideal world in which the actor dwelt. Their glare prevented the eye from being distracted by the objects without the precincts of that luminous semicircle. They were a friendly protection, a warm comfort, an idealizing auxiliary. The debutante was greeted warmly this was but a matter-of-course compliment paid by a new york audience to a daughter of a well-known citizen bow bow whispered a voice from behind the scenes i obediently bent my head bow to your right said the voice between the intervals of the applause i bowed to the right bow to the left i bowed to the left bow again I bowed again and again while the noisy welcome lasted. The play commenced, and with the first words I uttered, I concentrated my thoughts and tried to forget that I had any existence save that of the scornful Lady of Lyons. When we rose from our seats and approached the footlights, Mrs. Vernon gave my hand a reassuring pressure. It was a kindness scarcely needed. I had lost all sensation of alarm the play progressed as smoothly as it commenced in the third act where pauline first discovers the treachery of claude the powers of the actress began to be tested every point told and was rewarded with an inspiring burst of applause the audience had determined to blow into a flame the faintest spark of merit in the fourth act i became greatly exhausted with the unusual excitement and exertion there seemed a probability that i would not have the physical strength to enable me to finish the performance mrs vernon has often laughingly reminded me how she shook and pinched me when i was lying to all appearance tenderly clasped in her arms she maintains that by these means she constantly roused me to consciousness i am her debtor for the friendly pinches and opportune shakes in the fifth act, Pauline's emotions are all of calm and abject grief, the faint, hopeless strugglings of a broken heart. My very weariness aided the personation. The parlor of excessive fatigue, the worn-out look, the tottering walk, the feeble voice suited Pauline's deep despair. The audience attributed an actor's consummate skill that which was merely a painful and accidental reality. The play ended and the curtain fell. It would be impossible to describe my sensations of relief as I watched that welcome screen of coarse green bays slowly unrolling itself and dropping between the audience and the stage. Then came the call before the curtain, the crossing the stage in front of the footlights. Mr. C. led me out. The whole house rose, even the ladies, a compliment seldom paid. I think it rained flowers, for bouquets, wreaths of silver, and wreaths of laurel fell in showers around us. Cheer followed cheer as they were gathered up and laid in my arms. The hats of gentlemen's and handkerchiefs of ladies waved on every side. I curtsied my thanks and the welcome green curtain once more shut out the brilliant assemblage. Then came the deeper, truer sense of thankfulness. The trial was over. The debutante had stood the test. She had not mistaken the career which had clearly pointed out as the one for which she was destined. The carriage stopped at my father's house as we drove home. He had heard the wheels and opened the coach door himself. Fondly and closely was one occupant of that carriage pressed to his heart. My sense of distinctive appreciation must have been blunted indeed if his words of congratulation did not fall sweeter upon my ears than all the applause that was still echoing within them. He had witnessed the performance from a private box, but I had not been aware of his presence." The next morning, the press were unanimous in commendation. The journals of the day were filled with gratifying predictions, prophecies that have not remained wholly unrealized. Offers of engagements in all the principal theaters throughout the Union now poured in upon us. The first engagement that we accepted was at the Walnut Street Theater, Philadelphia, where fashion had been produced. I made my appearance there a few nights after my debut in New York. If I had abundant cause for gratitude and self-congratulation on the first night of my appearance in public, I suffered enough upon the second to atone for all the elation or vanity of which I may have been guilty. Mr. C.'s contract stipulated that he should play opposite characters to me in whatever theater we appeared. Mr. Wheatley was an established favorite at the Walnut Street Theater. He had enacted, to the satisfaction of the audience, the same role that Mr. C. was called upon to assume. The manager remonstrated at Mr. Wheatley's being displaced. Various friends assured us that the public would demand him as my support, but what could be done? Mr. C. had the right of supporting me by contract. He could not ask to be forego a right so advantageous. Had he been asked, he would certainly have given an indignant refusal. The play was The Lady of Lyon. The house was crowded to its utmost capacity. For the second time, I took my seat upon the small sofa to represent Pauline de Chapelle. The curtain rose. The welcome was fully as cordial as in New York. The first act and the second act passed off uninterruptedly as before. In the third, Pauline is thrown constantly with Claude. I observed that Mr. C. hesitated in the words of his part, Now and then he spoke in a thick voice. He walked with an unsteady step, and when the business of the play required him to take my hand, his own trembled violently. This is what actors call stage fright, was my internal reflection. He knows that the audience desire Mr. Wheatley in this part, and he is so much alarmed that he cannot act this misplaced emotion as i thought it on the part of claude distracted my attention and prevented my identifying myself with the character of pauline in the fourth act during the scene between the widow and pauline beausante and pauline i began to recover my suspended faculties claude enters and with the first words he uttered came that sound more fearful than all others to an actor's ears a hiss a faint one still a hiss i heard claude groan and ejaculate something in an undertone i felt indignant at the want of generosity displayed by the audience as the act advanced the hisses were repeated whenever he spoke a succession of false notes in concert could not have a more jarring effect on the nerves. I could scarcely remember a line of my part and, immediately after the curtain fell, had not the slightest recollection of how the act ended. After a change of attire, Pauline appears alone in the fifth act. When the scene opened, The audience loudly testified their greeting that no share of their displeasure was intended for me. I was too much agitated to attempt to personate Pauline as I had done on a previous occasion. I mechanically uttered the words of the text. The anticipation of Claude's appearance, which must take place in a few moments, had filled me with dread, a fear that was too well founded. The audience allowed him to enter and were silent pauline makes her appeal to colonel damas claude advances and she approaches him without looking at him i hurried over the language of the part not waiting for his few words of reply and turned to the table where the father and the mother of pauline were seated then claude must speak the hisses of the audience were deafening the theatre seemed suddenly filled with snakes i turned round instinctively the pit had risen in a body with evident intention of violence i afterwards heard that they were preparing to fling brickbats at the offending claude i did not suspect in what manner mr c had deserved their displeasure that he chanced to be an englishman was i imagined his principal crime and the audience chose that I should appear with my own countryman, Mr. Wheatley, their avowed favorite. Advancing to the front of the stage, I rapidly entreated their forbearance. What I said, I have not the remotest idea, for I acted on impulse, and under strong excitement, believing that I was only preventing a gross injustice. Instantaneously, every seat was resumed. A dead silence prevailed while I spoke an applause took place of the hisses there were too many true gentlemen present for mr c to have anything further to fear little as he merited the defense a faint attempt was made to conclude the play the audience offered no opposition and in a few minutes the curtain fell i was unwilling to respond to the call but yielded to the request of the managers mr c offered to lead me out I knew that it was unwise to accept his services, but I could not refuse them without wounding him more deeply. He stooped together the bouquets with which the audience, in anticipation of a performance very different from the one they had witnessed, came supplied. Then I noticed that he reeled from side to side, and, after bending down, could scarcely regain his equilibrium. I thought it very strange that his stage fright— deprived him of the faculty of moving about without staggering when the play was ended the instant we were behind the scenes again he gave way to an extravagant burst of grief and darted off followed by several of his friends mr mallet was leading me to my dressing-room when i overheard the madame de chapelles of the evening say to another lady he got no more than he deserved. I wish they had brick him. The man was as drunk as he could be. What a shame, I involuntarily exclaimed, turning to Mr. Mowat. Did you hear what that woman said? Yes, he replied, and it was too true. I saw you did not suspect his situation, and purposely left you in ignorance. Suspect it? The idea that he was intoxicated never once entered my head, nor was it remarkable that I should not have recognized the workings of the enemy which men put into their mouths to steal away their brains, for up to that period it had been my fortune to witness few similar exhibitions. The painful impressions of that wretched night very nearly gave me a distaste for the profession, but I had not entered it for amusement. The next night Mr. C. made an apology to the audience, stating that he had been led to an unwanted indiscretion while dining out, and entreating their indulgence. They pardoned him nominally, but rarely bestowed upon his best efforts any evidence of approval. The engagement was a trying one, and I rejoiced when it was concluded." The houses were but half filled, and I labored under a sense of depression which nothing could remove. At the close of the fortnight, Mr. C. returned to New York, and I remained one night in Philadelphia to appear for the benefit of Mr. Blake, the stage manager. He selected fashion as the play to be represented, and persuaded me to enact Gertrude, The character affords no opportunity for the display of dramatic abilities, and I reluctantly consented. Once more, an audience as fashionable and as crowded as the one which witnessed the miseries of my first night in Philadelphia graced the theater. Mr. Wheatley appeared in his original part of The Count and was received with enthusiasm. Mr. Blake's Adam Truman was more truthful and touching than ever. The plague could not on any occasion have given more satisfaction. End of chapter 12